Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and our text will be verses 4 through 14 this morning. We're looking at God's own witness to the Son as we read of scriptures from the Old Testament that are proving the Lord Jesus is superior to that of angels. Angels fascinate people. They've always fascinated people. They fascinated people uh, during the time of Christ and before. They fascinate people today. And the Bible teaches us of their reality. We see them in Scripture. We often see them in Scripture fulfilling some mission on behalf of God. We see them worshiping God. And we oftentimes even see human reactions to angels, which is usually fear. And that's because angels are depicted as warriors, And one of the greatest missions that was given to angels was that of giving the law to Moses. You read in Acts chapter 7, in verse 53, an explanation of this. It says, you who receive the law as delivered by angels. And so how we understand that, because when you go back and you read the book of Exodus and you see Moses receiving the law, the text tells us he receives the law from God himself. And when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament tells us that God gave the law through angels. And so angels were a mediator that God was speaking through. Much like a prophet, God would send a prophet and put his words in their mouths. So the prophet, as he was speaking, he could say, thus saith the Lord. He was speaking the very words of God. And it was the same thing with angels in giving the law to Moses. And so the result became, is this, is that angels took almost a preeminent role in Jewish life. Some gave them preeminence. And why? Well, because their covenantal system was handed to them through angels, and as a result, they became superior. And as he's writing this letter to this Hebrews, or this sermon that is to the Hebrews, they're thinking about going back to their old ways, and he's making the case that Jesus is greater than all of these things. So as amazing as angels are, and as special as they are, and as powerful as they are, when compared to Jesus, the Son of God, they are actually infinitely less. And so Hebrews teaches us here that Jesus has a more excellent name than the angels, and that name is Son. And that is the primary argument we have been reading so far, is that Jesus is the Son of God. We also saw last week that the angels worshipped Him, that the angels served Him, that they carried out His mission. And this morning, we, we look at the next point as to why Jesus is superior to angels. He created them. He created them. And because through Jesus all things were created, they were created by him and through him. And so you see a contrast, as we, we will zero in on verses 10 through 12, you see a contrast between that which is created and that which is Jesus. And so let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 4. This is God's word. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. I just want you to focus in on verses 10 through 12 this morning. And we really see three points that come out. The first is that Jesus created all things. And so here's an easy way to think about this. All things were created. Jesus wasn't created. The next point that we will see is that Christ is eternal. So think of it this way. All things will perish. Creation perishes. Jesus doesn't perish. And then finally, we will see this morning that all things change. In creation itself, it changes. And here's what we need to know. Jesus doesn't change. And those are the three points that come forth from these verses. And as the author of Hebrews is making this point, he's quoting God's Word. He's quoting the Old Testament. And specifically, he's quoting Psalm 102. And I'm so thankful, and I couldn't have planned it this way, because we just read sequentially through the Psalms every Sunday morning, so this wasn't by some design of mine that we would read Psalm 102 this morning. It just so happened that that was what we read, and we read the very passages that are quoted here. And as you look at Psalm 102, it's a prayer of lament. It is a cry over human frailty over human weakness, and how quickly life just passes us by. That is the the thrust of Psalm 102. And so it's not hard to imagine why Hebrews would use this particular passage to a group of Christians that are suffering, that are looking forward to maybe facing persecution, that he shows a passage where people are realizing their weakness, but yet they have hope in God's promises. And so we see that as he uses this, he begins by stating in verse 10, quoting from Psalm 102, verse 25 and 27, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, this is just simply speaking of creation. And it's it's Christ. It's a confirmation of verse 2, where it says, Through whom he created the world. 
That's a bold statement to say that Christ created the world, but then it is backed up by Old Testament that you, Lord, this is speaking of the Son, so when you read Psalm 102, and I would encourage you when you leave here, go read Psalm 102, think to yourself this, this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, if you go and compare Psalm 102 to what's written here in Hebrews, you'll, you'll notice that the words, you Lord, are not in Psalm 102. You don't see them there. They're, they're put here to show us and make a point that Jesus is identified as Lord, and Psalm 102 is addressed to, you guessed it, the Lord. In fact, the previous verses before verse 25 in Psalm 102 is speaking of God. And in other places in Psalm 102, you see it's directed towards Yahweh. And so here, we're being told, you Lord... When we read Psalm 102 and we read the word Lord, when we read God, we should be thinking automatically, Jesus. Now, as He is the one who is credited with creation, but we also see that He is credited as being Yahweh. Now, it's amazing some of the things that we saw in Psalm 102 when it was just read earlier is that Yahweh is enthroned forever. Psalm 102 also tells us, one day all nations will fear the name of the Lord and that the kingdoms will come before the Lord. All these things are said in Psalm 102 before we even get to the direct quote, and they're all applied to Christ. That His throne is forever, all nations will fear the name of the Lord, and kingdoms will all come to Him. This is speaking of Jesus. So beyond just the fact that the point that that, that He created all things, it's showing how all things are fulfilled in Him. His Lordship. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. It is defined by this. Jesus' lordship is defined by this, is that he brings all things into existence. So what is Jesus Lord over? Whatever exists. Because he created it. He brought it into being. The lordship of Christ is universal then over all things because all things were brought into being by him. Specifically, the text says, you laid the foundation. That is the earth. He did this in the beginning, which teaches us something. The earth itself is not eternal. And the things that the earth are made of are also not eternal. Jesus created these things from a starting point. All things that exist had a starting point. But it does bring us to this question that we have to think about, and this is a question oftentimes you hear with children asking. So any children here, if you've asked this question, here's your answer. What was before the beginning? God. Eternity. But what does the text tell us? What was before the beginning? Jesus. 
Jesus always was. Jesus is eternal. Nothing existed but God alone. And Jesus himself brings all of creation into existence. And so then it is all dependent upon Jesus. And if Jesus existed before the beginning, what does that mean? Jesus is dependent upon no one. So you're sitting here this morning and you're being held up by a chair, but that's really just the the big picture or the outside picture. You're being held up by Christ. He's the one who's holding you up right now. And look at how it says that He created. And the heavens are the work of your hands. That's poetic language. We should recognize poetic language when it's in the Scriptures. It's not saying that the pre-incarnate Christ literally fashioned things together with His literal hands. It's not literally referring to that. But it is painting a picture of how Jesus created everything, and I think we ought to note it. It specifies care. It specifies purpose. That Jesus created the world, the earth, the universe, all things as a master craftsman puts together a work of art. He does this with his hands, as it says, which is to say that his creation has value, it has purpose, and it was specifically made according to his purpose. You think of handmade things carry much more value than something that is put together on a, in a conveyor belt type of process in a factory. Think about a handmade Stradivarius violin. If you have a Stradivarius violin, it is worth millions of dollars because it was handcrafted by the master craftsman Antonio, Antonio Stradivari. The value of a Stradivarius violin is so, so astronomically high that you have to be a multimillionaire to be able to afford one. He crafted it with his own hands, and it has a special value with it. You know what's interesting? Stradivarius lived in the 1600s in Cremona, Italy. And if you go there today... The tradition carries on, and you can still get violins made in that town by these master luthiers. A luthier is one who makes instruments with their hands. It takes 200 hours to make a violin. And they're incredibly valuable if they come from Italy because they're handmade. You know what the difference, though, is? Jesus didn't take pre-existing material to craft the earth. Jesus didn't have to take 200 hours. Actually, we're told he took six 24 literal hour days. And that he spoke it into existence. And if you think about this as the Hebrews here are putting a higher level of emphasis on angels. Angels didn't bring forth the earth. Angels didn't create anything. They, they worship God and they, they serve God. In fact, at the creation itself, we're told the angels 
were there watching. They weren't participating as if Jesus need help, needed help. In fact, we're told in Job chapter 38, in verse 6, on this is on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone, talking about the earth. Verse 7, when the morning stars, that's the angels, sang together and all the sons of God, that's the angels, shouted for joy. In other words, they, they weren't creating anything. They themselves were created. And when Jesus was creating something out of nothing, they were just mere spectators watching. They were just watching it. Why did Jesus create? Why did he lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens? Why were they the work of his hands? Did Jesus just get bored? Did Jesus get lonely as if he lacked anything? You see, Jesus created and brought forth all of creation for a purpose. And here's something that we need to know right now, is that you, you sitting here, were created for a purpose. You were not an accident. In fact, the Scripture tells us that you were knit together in your mother's womb. Who knit you together? Jesus knit you together in your mother's womb. And you were created in His image. You were created with a purpose, which is for His glory, according to His plan. Now think of this. Jesus created all things. Everything else was created. Why would we ever live for any lesser glory than for Jesus who brought you into existence? The one who formed you. The one who created you the one who has set a plan for your life in eternity. Why would we ever live for anything else? Because if we live for something created, we automatically live for something that is infinitely less than Christ. He makes a second point. Not only do we see here all things were created, Jesus wasn't created, but we see this is that Jesus is eternal in verse 11. Creation perishes. Jesus doesn't. And so you look at verse 11, it says, They will perish. What is the antecedent to they? It's the earth and the heavens. The earth and the heavens will perish, but you remain. They, that is the earth and the heavens, will all wear out like a garment. That is, they will eventually cease. And I think that the previous verse, it did speak of Jesus being eternal, but this verse teaches us something not only about Christ being eternal, but it teaches us something about creation itself, and it is this, it will end and it will wear out. It is decaying, it is dying. Creation itself is decaying, creation itself is dying. That's the whole point. And But we see here there is a certainty of an end of our current earth and world. They will perish. This is a future statement of something that will happen. And specifically, we know this refers to that they will be, they will be destroyed or they will be refined. 
But by contrast of the heavens and the earth that will perish, we see that, what does it say? Jesus remains. And here's the point. The point of all of this is, why would you trust in things that were created rather than trust in Jesus? They go away, but Jesus is forever. He will remain. And specifically, they will perish refers to the day of the Lord. That great day when the Lord Jesus himself returns. It's stated not as a possibility, they will perish. There is coming a day where Christ will return and decisively end our current order and move us to a new age. We're reminded of that throughout Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, we read this, For you have need of endurance. Why do you have need of endurance? Because you're facing suffering. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And look what it says, quoting Habakkuk, Yet a little while the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What's the point? Hold fast. There's coming a day. The heavens and the earth will perish, but Jesus remains. Are you in Jesus, or are you in this creation? Are you in Adam? Everything else is dying, but Jesus is coming. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26 We read this, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the heaven or the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. That's speaking of all things will be shaken one day in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Who remains? Jesus. If you are in Jesus, what does that mean? You cannot be shaken. Heavens and the earth are dying, are decaying, can be shaken, will be shaken. They will be transformed. They will be renewed. There is coming a day when that will happen. But we have been given an eternal, unshakable kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. A kingdom that cannot be shaken because while all things else pass away, Jesus remains. In Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Look at the big picture of life, my friends. Look at the big picture. The big picture is this. What we face today will one day be gone. The problems that we experience right now will, will one day vanish. Because if you're in Christ, you're part of an unshakable kingdom. And while you feel like you're shaken right now, there's coming a day where Christ and His unshakable kingdom 
will be consummated. It says that creation is described in the text. They will all wear out like a garment. That's how creation is described as a garment. You think of Jesus saying moth and rust and how it destroys. A garment is something that is easily destroyed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, it says this, And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. And I want you to notice something about that. The verb passing is speaking of something that is happening right now. It says, for the present form, the way things are right now, this present form is in the process of passing away. It's moving towards an end. It means that this, this universe is transitory. It means it's brief. It means it's fleeting. It means it's susceptible to change. The earth is subject to change and is changing. You are subject to change. I am subject to change. How many times have you changed your mind about something that you were really certain of in your life? You changed. Things are constantly changing. Styles change. It's interesting to look at hairstyles over the course of the decades and how vastly they have changed. The environment changes in what seems to be cyclical fashion. Tastes change. Technology changes. I just bought a new computer. It's probably up, outdated already. Everything is in this state of change. But we see that in terms of the physical creation, it says this, they wear out like a garment. You can relate to this because there comes a point with my own clothes where I know, okay, i got to toss that out. I can't wear that out anymore. It's always unfortunate with my jeans because when my jeans become the most comfortable is when they become the most holy. And then you have to get rid of them. Why? Because they wear out. Why do they wear out? Well, heat, chemicals, friction, it causes wear. Maybe they rub up against something and it causes a little tear in it and then they, they're, they're now no longer useful. They, they wear out. And creation itself is described here as a garment. They will all wear out. That is the heavens and the earth will wear out like a garment, like those jeans that you have to throw out because they have holes in them. That's what is said of the creation. So a garment is very temporal. And this is what is described as of creation itself. That creation is wearing out. And so what is here now, what you experience now, will not be in the same sense in which we will experience it later. You know another way of looking at this Instead of just saying things wear out, another way of saying it is this is, uh, friends, life is short. Life is very short. 
In fact, in James chapter 4 and verse 14, we read these words, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, for what is your life? That's the question. For what is your life? Well, James answers it. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're familiar with how that works. Life is quick. I remember my grandmother always telling me, life just flies by. It seems like it just started. You're just getting started, and then you're, you're now looking out the back end of the hearst. Because life is quick. Psalm 144, verse 4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And yet, in our heart, we know that, yes, life is short, but we know in our heart that there's something more. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has put eternity into man's heart. Your very heart tells you that this is not all that you're going to experience. That there's going to be something more. Let that sink in about how we live life right now. Why would I put all my efforts for that which is temporal rather than that for which is eternal? The great Puritan John Owen, I'm I'm paraphrasing what he said. He didn't say exactly like this, but I got it from him. Why would I, as a dying man, find contentment in dying things? Think about that. If the earth is passing, if the earth is perishing, and it's going to one day perish as we know it, why would I seek my contentment, and why would I seek the glory as a dying man? Because I'm a dying man. As soon as you're born, you're you're working on dying Why would I find contentment in it? John Owen goes on to say, basically, use the world, enjoy the world. It is here for our enjoyment, but here's the crucial point. Live on Christ. For if I'm in Christ, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. We are subject to change. Jesus is unchanging Jesus remains eternally, and he remains eternally unchanged, which brings us to verse 12. Change happens. Jesus doesn't change. It says, like a robe, you will roll them up. Them is the heavens and the earth. Like a garment, they will be changed But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus as creator is also the one who decides the end of all things. Notice what it says. You will roll them up like a garment. This is speaking of Jesus. You will. Jesus, as God, sovereignly determines his own timetable. I know there's that perplexing passage that we read where when Jesus is asked, when will these things come? And he says, only the Father knows, not even the Son knows. We understand that in terms of his human nature. 
Jesus, as fully God, knew all things. There was nothing that he did not know. He's speaking of his human nature there. But here specifically, it tells us, like a robe, you will roll them up. Who is it that will roll them up? Who is it that decides this? It is Jesus Jesus himself then limits the existence of all things in their current state according to his own timetable. Jesus is the one who brings things to their culmination. And I know what you're thinking right now. What about Ecclesiastes 1.4? You were thinking that, right? Where it tells us this, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Well, what about that? It's speaking of the current fashion of the earth. It says that he will roll it up. That is speaking of a cessation, a termination, a conclusion of the present creation. You see the same type of language in in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 where it says the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. There's that phrase. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's that idea of a cessation of something, an end of something. And he's doing this, it says, like a garment, sticking with that language of a garment. It's by comparison. So you think of how effortless it is for us to roll up a garment. This is speaking of immense power. That Jesus will end the present order of all things with the ease and effort with which I could just take this jacket off and roll it up and toss it. In fact, that will take more energy for me to do that than Christ by his word. It speaks of his immense power. And you think about the power in which it would take to roll up not only the universe, but just think of the earth for a second. Consider the frightening nature of an earthquake. It's interesting, if you, if you go to the south, they think that in California we have earthquakes constantly, and they're the most frightening things ever. And I'm thinking, you guys have hurricanes. But we, we're, we're used to them somewhat, But you think of how powerful an earthquake is. It has the power to take a building down or or split a road. Or you remember, I think it was in 87 or 88 when the bridge came down, the Bay Bridge came down. It has such immense power. I was just doing a little research. This never happens. But just to give some perspective... If there was an earthquake of a 9.0, again, that never happens, it would be the equivalent of 25,000 nuclear bombs going off. That's amazing power. Most earthquakes are 2.0 to 5.0 where stuff breaks, or you just feel it shake. But it has the power to actually move part of the earth. But here's the thing that we should note. It's local. If we have an earthquake here, even a big earthquake in San Francisco, New York doesn't feel that. We might feel it here. It's local. And then what happens is that the earth is still here. We're still here, even after a massive earthquake. We're, we're still standing. 
But the greatest power of an earthquake that is temporary, that is local, you see by contrast God's infinite power and that he'll simply take all of creation and and just roll it up. That's speaking of our creation. That's speaking of our world. That's speaking of what we live in right now. It's moving towards an end. And as we speak, it is even ending But by contrast of that, of creation, that like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. That is, Jesus is unchanging. Jesus does not change. Jesus is not going anywhere. Later in Hebrews we read this, but you are the same and your years will have no end. This is speaking of what we call immutability. There's no mutation. There's no change in God. There's no uh, anything that could possibly change or uh, variegate in Him. He is fixed. He is permanent. There is no variation. He is constant. That's what it means to be immutable. He's not changing. We see as Hebrews tells us of Jesus that He has an indestructible life. His life cannot be altered. Not only does he remain, but he remains unchanged. There's no change in him. In Malachi, we read of this attribute of immutability applied to God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now think of it this way. Why does he say that? Because God made promises to his children that he would keep them. And he's showing them this. Because I do not change, you will not perish. That's the security of salvation. When everything else is changing, when everything is open to mutation, we see this is if you're in Christ, because his, He is the same today and forever, you have security of salvation. We see that God's plan in eternity is guaranteed, for He will not change. He won't one day just change his mind on you. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So whatever he planned for you in creating you with that purpose and for his glory, that cannot be taken away from you. So listen, if you've been forgiven... If you've received forgiveness in Christ, He won't change His mind. If you've been justified in Christ, He will not undo your justification. If you've been cleansed by Christ, He will not now defile you. If you've been given a new heart in Christ, He's not going to change His mind and give you back the old heart. 
if Christ has saved you, your salvation is eternal because he will not let you go because he has promised to not let you go. He has promised that those that are in his hand, no one can take and remove from his hand. That's a promise from Christ. And unless we think he can change his mind, that promise is good. That's how it applies to our salvation, that he is unchanging. But here in Hebrews, it's speaking about the very heavens and the very earth, which are subject to change. They will change. Second Peter chapter 3, we read in verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. If Jesus is unchanging, and Jesus has promised that day is coming, that means that that day is coming. Verse 13 of 2 Peter, But according to his Listen, promise. What do we know about the promises of Christ? They're unchanging. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, there's coming a day where our current world will be changed. A lot of people debate whether the earth will remain and it will just be purified by the removal of evil, like as in a purification by fire. The other view is that it will, it will be destroyed and recreated. We don't really know. I, I, I tend to lean that it's speaking of a purification and the removal of evil. But it doesn't matter. We're promised a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And that will be that unshakable kingdom. Now, if he has promised this, it is an unchanging promise. And the beauty of this promise is this. Sin, which ruins everything, will be removed. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. None of that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no sin. And how wonderful will that be to not be conflicted with your own sinfulness? but it will be removed. If all things are moving in the direction of completion, let me just ask you this. How does this help us prioritize right now? 
If all things are moving towards their culminated end where Christ will decisively end all things, how does that help us live right now? Well, we, get, we have comfort knowing that Christ is in control, that Christ is working things out as He has said He would, that we have comfort in this life, that His promises are true, that they're unchanging, that they're eternal. While all things else go, His Word remains forever. We have comfort in that. But how does that prioritize how we live right now? It prioritizes prioritizes this is that we don't live for the temporary, but we can live for eternity right now. Live for eternity. Live for Christ. Because in Him, our unchanging eternal God is our only hope and comfort in this life, that I am not my own, but that I have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Let us live for Him, because if you live for Him, you live for eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal life that we have in Him. We thank You for these reminders that were given of who Christ is as our eternal God, the one who accomplished salvation on behalf of His people. I pray that, Father, this would give us comfort that this would give us peace, uh, that we would look forward to that city which does not have foundations built by human hands, but that city that you have created for your people. May we look forward to that day. May we live for that day, and may we rejoice that that day is awaiting us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.